All right, let's go to our scripture reading for today. We're looking at uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, you can follow along in the bulletin or in your Bible. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Um, let's listen attentively as I hear, uh, as I read uh, God's word. Uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and dive into God's word. Uh, Father, we thank you for gathering us here to sit before your word, which is also where you are. Uh, you are where your word is. And would you give us uh, ears, not just physical ears, but spiritual ears to hear from our hearts what you have to speak to us and, and let it change us, let it transform us and impact the way that we will live our lives uh, as we step out of this building today. Uh, do this work in us through your helper, your Holy Spirit, um, and may he be present here to teach us and to, to instruct us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're continuing in our uh, series in the book of Revelation, and we're hitting chapter 2 now. Uh, we, we're going through this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and getting into now the part of this book uh, that's probably better known than the other parts of the book of Revelation, that is the letter to the seven churches. And if you've, uh, if you've grown up in the church and if you heard some teaching from the book of Revelation, even if it's not like the whole book of Revelation, you probably heard something about the letters to the seven churches. And part of that is because it's a bit more applicable, it's a bit more uh, direct in its communication. There's not a whole lot of imagery or symbolism or allusions to the Old Testament that we have to decipher as we have been doing the past few weeks. Um, and and it, it is still true that in order to understand the book of Revelation properly, you have to understand the Old Testament because there are more allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation than there are predictions about the future. Having said that, the letters to the seven churches are a bit clearer. <laughs> and so uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit more approachable, accessible, um, portion of the book of Revelation. So I'm excited to dive into this with you. And today we begin with the church that's um, planted in the biggest and most well-known city during this time, and that is Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. And what would surprise you about um, this first letter to the church in Ephesus is that it's a church that on the surface seems to need no further instructions. Because when you look at Ephesus throughout the Bible, um, you'll learn that it's a city where the Apostle Paul himself spent more than two years planting the church. 
And then um, afterwards, Timothy, the disciple of Paul, comes to be their pastor. And tradition also has it that Apostle John himself, during his old age, went and pastored at the church in Ephesus. So you've had the Apostle Paul, Timothy, and the Apostle John as your first three pastors. Uh, what more is there for you to learn? It kind of reminds me of what um, Obi-Wan said to um, young Anakin in, in episode three. Um, I have taught you everything I know, right? There's nothing more for me to teach you. Um, but yet, interestingly, there's actually something vital and essential that the Christians in Ephesus were beginning to lose their grip on, and it made this letter urgent for them, very urgent and important for them, and therefore urgent and important for us today, because as we talked about last time, the seven churches symbolize what the number seven usually symbolizes, and that is the complete or the whole entity of the church. It's the, it's the universal church of Christ all throughout history, so what's written to the seven churches are written to us today. And, guys, if, if the church where Apostle Paul pastored needs this letter urgently, the church where I'm pastoring, do you think you would need this urgently? I think so, right? So we need to take this with a, a sense of desperation to, to learn what it has to say. This is, this is desperately important for us to learn. We're going to uh, break down this letter to the Ephesian church in, into three parts. It will be what the church first got right where the church went wrong, and how the church can build back up. How can it be restored, okay? What the church got right, what the church got wrong, where it went wrong, and how it can be rebuilt, restored, okay? So uh, first, what they got right, right? Take a look at the introduction to the letter. Verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, okay? Now, don't get too thrown off by the, the angel, to the angel of the church. What's that? Uh, the Greek word for angel is synonymous with messenger. And so that's referring probably to the pastor or the teaching elder that was in charge of the church. It's a spiritual term that refers to the one who, who proclaims the, the, the gospel message. Does not mean you have to start calling me an angel. Right? And if you ask my wife, uh, she would discourage you from calling me an angel. <laughs> The more important expression here is the words of him. Okay, that's introducing the, the, the writer of this letter. Okay, um, the words of Jesus himself is what you're receiving. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's Christ. He has words for the Ephesian church. This is not coming from the Apostle John. This is coming from Christ himself. Okay. Why would Jesus have, and what does Jesus have to say so urgently to the Ephesian church pastored by Paul, Timothy, and John? Just to give you some context about the city of Ephesus, uh, it was the commercial center of that region, Asia Minor. So think New York City today. Okay? That, that was Ephesus, where much of their, their trade in that region took place. And because it was such a popular trade route, um, it became this culturally and religiously diverse city a pluralistic uh, kind of city and society, right? Again, like New York City and maybe like Atlanta as well. 
one of the one of its greatest wonders was a temple of Artemis, the Greek mythology goddess, right? And so it also served kind of as this um, religious tourism site of, of, of a sort as well. So um, think in that context and imagine the Ephesian church. One of the things that they had to constantly wrestle with was this philosophical, theological worldview challenge that came from this very you know, popular and commercially successful, diverse, and pluralistic society that they found themselves in. Truth in such a society, right, would be naturally seen as relative. It's a, truth is a relative concept, right? It's the idea that truth is personal to you. It's not universal to everyone. Um, you live your truth, depending on what culture you're brought up in, what country you come from, you know, what your upbringing is. And I live mine. Right? You have your truth and I have mine. Every, and everybody has an equal claim to truth. Right? That's how a pluralist, pluralistic society would function. What's forbidden is to claim that there's a, a sort of a universal truth that everyone is supposed to then conform to. That's what's a no-no right, in a pluralistic society. But that's just what Christianity is. Right? Uh, because Christ claimed not to be a truth, but the truth, the way, the life. No one comes to God but through me. So that would be a problem. That would have been a problem for the Ephesian Christians. And apparently there were also many false Christian apostles rising up during this time as well, uh, misleading Christians uh, with false teaching. They, they self-claimed to be apostles uh, and misleading people. And, and, and by misleading, I mean in, in this holistic sense of misleading because Right, religious life has an impact on all areas of life, right? Your, your financial life, your relational life, your political life. So to mislead someone religiously is to mislead them in, in a holistic way. And that's why in verse 2, it caused those people and their works evil. It's rightly called evil because the ramifications are so serious. All right, so when you take all of this into consideration, it makes sense of the praise that they receive in verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So meaning, uh, in the face of these false apostles rising up and trying to mislead the church, and also in the face of tremendous cultural pressure to abandon all belief in universal truth, um, and abandon sort of the, the Christian mission, right, to, to evangelize, the Christians in Ephesus, they held on. They worked, they toiled, they patiently endured, and they did not give in. They stood firm. They stood firm on the gospel of Christ and on sound doctrine. This was, in a sense, right, the legacy of the, the three apostles who, who planted and pastored this church. They, they did the apostles proud in this area. According to verse 3, they were enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake as well, meaning for the sake of Christ, not for their own glory. They weren't trying to say, look how awesome Christianity is, how much better it is than all the other religions. They were doing this for the sake of Christ, his love for the church, his care and uh, concern for the purity of the church. Their motive was not self-serving. Their motive was God-honoring. It was for the sake of Christ. So here, we have to make one point very, very clear. 
This is a good thing. There is no question that Jesus is praising them for this, for holding on to sound doctrine, refuting false teaching, and even calling out false teachers. It is a good thing, and Jesus is praising them for doing it. Whatever Jesus says after this should not subtract from this praise, should not take away from them that they are doing the right thing by holding on to sound doctrine, refuting false doctrine, and calling out false teachers. Right? It's important that we, we hold on to that. And they did this, again, when it's tremendously difficult to do this in their context, in a city like Ephesus, in a city like New York, in a city like Los Angeles or, or in Atlanta. So this is something that we should commend and also imitate and aspire towards. To hold on to sound doctrine, the universality of truth, and not just the relativity of truth. Somehow truth is, it's true for you, then it's true for you. If it's true for me, it's true for me. We should imitate the Ephesians in this area. Now, let me make a couple quick points of kind of clarification here before we move on, because this is where Christians run into the very, very common um, and rational objection, right, to Christianity, and that is the doctrinal exclusivity, right, of our religion, right? This, this claim that we have the truth and others disagree are wrong. Our culture has a problem with that, right, 2,000 years later, still. Uh, the world still sees that as an arrogant, prideful, intolerant claim to claim that truth is universal and we have it and others should conform to it. And because that's essentially to say, I'm right, you're wrong. And, and to be honest with you, not only does our culture have a problem with it, right? Us, as people who grew up in our culture, who were influenced by our culture, uh, we have a sort of polite, non-confrontational, modern personality that makes this uncomfortable for us as well, doesn't it, right? To say to anyone, um, I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> just let me just leave you with that right that nobody's comfortable with that in 2021 especially if you're in a city like like the one that we're in and then the, the one they were in so let's address that a little bit before we move on first okay what about the charge that is arrogant prideful intolerant to say my view is right and those who disagree with me are wrong you've heard this right the problem with that is the person who's saying that, that's arrogant, prideful, intolerant, are themselves saying that's right. And those who disagree with that are wrong. Does that make sense? Uh, they're saying they're right about everyone having to be tolerant, and whoever disagrees with that are wrong. Built into their tolerance is intolerance. Uh, and built into their inclusivity, so called, uh, supposedly inclusivity, is a sort of exclusion. If you don't agree with us, you're wrong. Uh, it takes someone doctrinal to tell someone not to be doctrinal. Okay? It, it takes someone who is dogmatic to tell someone you shouldn't be so dogmatic. And, and it's not even saying, right, I just think that's true for me. Uh, in my opinion, we should be more tolerant. Because, because most people who say that we should be more tolerant are saying we all ought to be more tolerant. They're claiming a universal truth that isn't just true for me, but true for everyone. In other words, everybody is saying at some point, 
when you, when you break down the layers. I'm right, and those who disagree with me are wrong. Everyone is saying that at some point. So the problem can't be that we make universal truth claims because everybody makes universal truth claims. To say there is no absolute truth is itself an absolute statement. Everybody makes absolute truth claims. The real problem is how we make those claims and whether you have something built in your worldview, uh, a reason to be gentle, humble, and respectful towards those whom you disagree with. That's the real question. It's not whether we have dogmatic views, we all do. The question is how we present them and do we have good reason to present them in a loving, gentle, respectful manner. And Christianity, the answer is absolutely yes. Because Christianity is a religion, it's, it's the only religion where we have the doctrine of incarnation. The Son of God condescending to us, becoming like us in order to reach us. He's come to search us out, not the other way around. The Christian claim is not, I have found God. I have found the truth, so you should live and believe and behave and think the way I do. Because that would be pretty arrogant, right? That would be a pretty prideful claim. That's not the Christian claim. The Christian claim is, when I was dead in my sins, and I was totally blind, and I had, I had no, no good in me that would warrant God to save me, God still came for me. There's no room for pride in that. There's, there's zero room for arrogance in that, but every reason to be humble and to be gentle and respectful. Because we're saying, I was desperately lost, Christ came to find me and saved me. And get this, Jesus is the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the one claiming to be the exclusive truth and to be the ex exclusive way. If you're going to lodge an accusation of arrogance and pride, it should be lodged against him. To believe him when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life is not arrogant. To believe him is not itself an arrogant thing. To claim that, you can say, might be arrogant. So the, so the burden of proof is on those who want to show us that Jesus was a prideful, arrogant jerk. <laughs> uh, but it's not arrogant and prideful to believe him and his words when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In short, right, the, the point of this is we can hold on to our belief in absolute truth because Jesus claimed it and we believe in him, and at the same time, understand we have no license whatsoever to be rude or arrogant or prideful about it. Okay. Because Christ found us while, while we were lost, while we were dead in our sins, and we were not saved because of our own goodness, but because of God's own goodness. The, the Christians in Ephesus, they were pretty good at striking this balance. Right, this was their strength. They, they were really great at articulating their theology, their worldview, logically defending it against other worldviews, perhaps debating it in the public square even, right? and without being rude about it, uh, without using doctrine like a hammer and, and just whacking people with it intellectually. 
but they were winsome in the way they presented their beliefs. They were good at this. This was their strength. And again, Jesus is commending them for that. He's praising them for it. Okay. You have discernment. You have sound doctrine. And these are your gifts, and, and I affirm them. I, I've given them to you. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. But here's where they, where they start to go wrong. And that's, that's the second point. Uh, take a look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, uh, most, I think, the common understanding of this is that you have abandoned, you as in the church have abandoned the love you had at first, and that love is Christ. You have abandoned your first love, and your first love ought to be Jesus. That's probably the most common way of understanding this, uh, this verse. And that is true, uh, but uh, several commentaries add to this understanding and say that this is not just talking about losing their first love for Christ, but also, if not more so, talking about losing their first love for one another. And I lean towards that interpretation, and I want to give you three reasons why. If you look at verse 5, when John specify, uh, when he specifies the repentance from abandoning the love you had at first, he, goes, he says, go back to the works that you did at first. That's how you repent of this. Go back to the works that you did at first. And works were more clearly signifying just how we as fellow human beings relate to one another through acts of service, through works. But works is generally not how the Bible describes our relationship to Christ, how that relationship is established. And so to reestablish that, it's strange for the author to say, or, or for Jesus to say, get working again. Because <laughs> we're not saved by works to begin with when it comes to our relationship with Christ. That's one reason. The second reason is the only time that the, the noun love appears in Revelation, the other time, is later on in Revelation 2.19 in the context of faith and love demonstrated through perseverance and service. And that is to say perseverance is demonstrated through faith and, and lo um, love is demonstrated through acts of service. And so again, love is used in the context of serving others. Right? The only other time the, the, the word love is used is again used in the context of works, serving other people. Third reason is, this is a common theme in, in John's writing. Um, if you look at first epistle uh, of John, chapter 3, he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right? Um, if you love me, Jesus says, and this is recorded by John, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Right? And this is a very big point that John repeatedly makes. And so for, for these reasons, it, it does seem like it's more likely that the first love Jesus is talking about here is not just highlighting the love that is lacking on this vertical level between Christ and the church, but on this horizontal level between Christians, among Christians, among brothers and sisters in Christ. So this means, it seems that the Christians in Ephesus, although they had really grounded themselves well and firmly in sound doctrine, and in truth, they were not so firm 
and consistent and persistent in loving one another. They held on to sound theology when it was really difficult to. But they did not hold on to one another as well when it was difficult to. Or um, they could have regularly identified and corrected false teaching or objections to Christianity, but they were not so regular in identifying and correcting or discipling ungracious, unloving conduct. That, not so much. They were great at handling difficult intellectual challenges, but not so great at handling difficult relational challenges. Now, this was not how they started off. This was not always the case, because if you look at verse 5, what Jesus says is, do the works you did at first, which implies at first they did have this. They had this enthusiastic love for one another. They just lost it over time. At first, they were bearing with one another, despite all the sort of natural challenges that would come with being a newly planted church in a pluralistic society, right? With new members coming from like all sorts of cultural backgrounds, speaking maybe different languages even, and, and different socioeconomic status, and under Roman rule, and yet having to learn how to submit to your leaders in the church, um, and being generous with your, with, your, with your things when you're in this commercial city where things are all that matter. I mean, they started off understanding all these dynamics and thriving and in being enthusiastic in the way they love one another. But as they began to come to grips with the challenge the challenge of loving different people long-term, loving difficult people long-term. And as they realized the reality of, of the slowness of change in character and how over time the deeper incompatibilities that exist begin to surface and become more visible, they began to grow weary and tired emotionally and relationally. They held strong intellectually, but not so strong relationally. Now, is this kind of over time waning of one's affections for one another, is that natural? Absolutely, that's natural. That's natural in, on any relational level. Parent, child, husband, wife, siblings. Uh, over time, the more you get to know someone, the more flaws they reveal and the more challenge you face in that relationship. It's a natural phenomenon, yes. But is this a spiritually healthy mark of the church? No, it's not. It's natural out there. It ought to be unnatural in here. And by in here, I don't mean when you're in this building. I mean the body of Christ. And so despite the other successes and strengths that they have, Jesus says, and Jesus, the, the head and king of the church, himself says, this I have against you. Imagine getting a letter from Jesus, and he does start off with compliments, but he says, in this area, I have this against you. 
And it's, it's not that you're not growing in numbers. It's not that your attendance has gone down. It's that you gave up on loving one another as you did at first. It's, it's almost like you, you, you're, you're done with the honeymoon phase and, and now you're jaded. Now it's okay to be cynical about Christians. Your love has grown cold. You've given up patiently enduring with tough people as you have patiently endured tough doctrines. You're not practicing the love that is patient, kind, not rude, keeps no record of wrongs, hopes all things, trusts all things, believes all things, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13. And this is when the church begins to lose its essence. And you're not working for Christ, but against him. I have this against you. What a sobering statement and, and reminder. Especially, I think, for a denomination like ours where we really care about the truth of Scripture and holding on to sound doctrine and sound teaching and not compromising the gospel despite what the changing culture says. We can fall into this error, can't we? Being, trying to be smart but not warm. Being right but not being kind. That's when Jesus himself, right, the head of the church, says, you're missing something vital and essential, and I have that against you. This is, the, this is the point where we have to respond the way that the Jews responded in Acts chapter 2 after they heard Peter's sermon. They come to Peter and they say, oh, brother, what must we do? Because this is not good. This, we can't stay this way. This is a serious thing. This is unacceptable. We need to change. There's a, there's a virus here that needs to be eradicated. We need to battle against this, right? And if that's where you are right now, that's exactly where God wants you to be. You're in a good place if that's, how you're, if that's what you're thinking right now. You're seeing the problem the way God sees it. And that's why you know, Scripture says, even, even in this letter, right, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. hear. That means uh, if, if you are his sheep, then your response to this would not be, no, no, I'm, I'm really done loving them. Your response would be, yes, Lord, you're right. I've majorly dropped the ball on this. And to them, Jesus has this, right? This is the last point. Here's what he offers them, a kind invitation to repent and to return. Now, what he doesn't do, again, he doesn't pit the love of doctrine against the love of people. He doesn't, he doesn't separate the two and say, you know, if, you, if you're erring towards this end, then just move over to over here. Forget doctrine for a moment and just love people. He does not do that. We should not do that. And in fact, this whole idea of don't drop the ball on loving people and just defend sound doctrine, but focus on loving people as well, is itself a doctrine, isn't it? That itself is sound doctrine. So it's not saying abandon sound doctrine and embrace loving people. It's saying embrace a more holistic doctrine. Okay. And, and refute further false teachings. Refute this false teaching that 
that all you have to do is love with your words but not with your deeds. Refute this false teaching that you can, you can love those who love you, but you don't have to love those who don't love you. Refute the false teaching that what God really asks of you is really for you to understand intellectually what's true about him, but not to practice what's true about him. Refute those false teachings as well, is what he's saying. This is not doctrine versus people. This is both and. And at the same time, hold fast to the true doctrine that whatever you do to the least of these, you do to God. Whatever you have not done to the least of these, you've not done to God. How and what you speak and behave toward your brother and sister in Christ, your, your leaders, your elders, your pastors, you do unto God. Love one another, therefore, as I have loved you. All these basic teachings of Christ, he's bringing back to our attention. There's really nothing new here. It's, it's the same teaching. Jesus has not changed. We've changed. The church has changed. And the call, therefore, is to return. And that's what repent means. To, to make a U-turn, to make a 180. Jesus says in verse 5, look, this is very interesting, right? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So this is how Jesus urges them to begin this process of repentance. Do the works you did at first. N- notice Jesus doesn't say, Wait until you rekindle that first honeymoon phase passion you had, and then, and then when you really feel like it, go and love and serve other people. He says, do, do the works that you did during the honeymoon phase. In other words, he's not saying wait until you feel like it, to love your neighbor to, and, and go and love them then. He's saying, love your neighbor with your works, go back to the deeds first, and your feelings will return. Okay. Um, the, 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 the truth of repentance is, yes, it is a matter of the heart, right? But the way that the heart is proven genuine is through our works. Right? So we have to embrace both of these truths in the Bible. We have to understand repentance is a matter of the heart, and the heart is proven genuine through our actual works, not just through the the feeling of remorse or even our tears, but our hands, our feet, our words. Repentance comes through these means. This is true on any relational level, right? Let's say I have told my kids, to clean up their, their, the mess in their room before they go to bed. And, uh, and 15 minutes later, I come back and I, I check in on them. And they have not cleaned their room at all. And I say, hey, you have completely neglected what your father has told you to do. And that's dishonoring your parents. That's disobedience. And let's say they show remorse. Right? They just show this visibly, emotionally, they show remorse. And, and they're like, oh, Father, I realize my trespasses. And they will never say that. But let's say they do. Um, 
and, and I, have, I will right my wrongs. And I said, okay, I'll come back in 15 minutes and check on you again. So I go and I come back in 15 minutes. And let's say what I find is not only a, clean, uh, not, not only a room that is not clean, but they are proceeding to make an even bigger mess because they're messing around. Uh, and, and the details feel like they're like too much of a true story it's because it is. Uh, what, <laughs> how would I, at that point, evaluate the emotional remorse that they showed me 15 minutes ago? Oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot. I'll do that now. I'm sorry I disobeyed you. And the visible emotional sort of distraughtness. How much value uh, would I put on that in that, in that moment? It would be zero. The value would be zero. Because true remorse in this case would not just have been what they're wearing on their faces and what they're doing with their facial expressions and emotions, but what they're doing with their hands. And are they actually picking up the mess? That would have meant true repentance, wouldn't it? This is an utterly reasonable thing that Jesus is asking of the church to not repent with words and with feelings, but with your hands and your feet to actually clean your room. And, and perhaps because this is not a lesson that's so easily learned, where Jesus adds the infamous if not, right, the, the, the warning language uh, that's frequently found in the Bible. If not, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And that is, you know, to truly repent. What does that mean, right? What kind of a threat is that? I will remove your lampstand. Um, remember the seven golden lampstands signify the real presence of God and the power of his spirit that mark the true people of God. It, it did that in the temple, the, the lampstand in the temple, and now here we see it does that for the church as well because they're the same people. And Jesus says, without this, without this true repentance that brings you back to the works of love, I cannot mark you honestly, truly, as my people. That's a scary warning. There's, a also, there's also an allusion here back to the parable that Jesus told about the lamp Right, that's not hidden under a basket, but put on a stand, a lamp stand, for everyone in the in the light to, to, to be able to see. So in that same way, let your light shine before others so that they will see your good doctrine, your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right. That's how we go from the just being a natural person to a spiritual person. When we let our light shine. Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, if you love those who love you well and not, not those who are difficult to love, who, who hate you even, uh, what benefit is that to you? Don't even sinners do that? Don't even wicked people love those who love them? That just makes you a natural person. And the church is not a natural entity. It's meant to be a spiritual, supernatural entity. And in the same vein, the, the Christian agenda never was 
how do I hold on to, just hold on to what's right, and whenever someone wrongs me or wrongs this truth, how do I correct them as quickly as I can, as effectively as I can? Or when people offend me, how, how can I have my day in court? That's not how a church is built. That's, that's how a church falls apart, when it functions like the world, when it's always eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Without love that covers a multitude of sins, church dies. The lampstand gets removed. So knowing that this is utterly a spiritual thing belonging to the true church, he, he says in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches or what the shepherd is saying to the sheep because Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice and they'll follow me. This is for you, sheep, for those of you who are sheep. If you hear it, you will follow him and do it. And then he says this, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus even frames the victory we win of conquering in spiritual warfare, not in terms of a fight we fight against this idolatrous city that's out there called Ephesus or Atlanta, Georgia or New York or whatever. He frames it in terms of, of spiritual battle we fight on the inside against our old selves. Conquer the old self by the power of the gospel and love those who hate you. And not just those who love you. Conquer that. And you will be granted to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. And since that is your destination, that is the coming kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth, don't, don't try to conquer Ephesus. Conquer your heart, the heart that's grown cold, cold towards others and cold towards God. Love your neighbors. Love those who offend you. Love those who persecute you. And in this way, let your light shine before others. That's the charge. And that's... That's what the uh, Christians and Ephesians needed to hear. That's, that's what I think we need to hear today at NCA as well. So my hope is that whatever we get to be known for, not that we're trying to be known for anything, it would not just be for a devotion to God's word, a commitment to sound teaching, to biblical teaching, but, but to loving one another well. And, and not giving up on loving one another well. Whoever walks through those doors and enters our worship at fellowship, let's be able to say, I'm, I'm willing to serve you and support you, encourage you as long as you're here. I'm here to love you when it's easy to love you. I'm here to love you when it's difficult to love you. Now, is that going to happen overnight? Guys, it, it didn't happen overnight for the, the church that was pastored by Paul, Timothy, and John. Do you think it's going to happen overnight here because I'm the pastor? <laughs> no. If anything, it will take much longer. But can we start creating a culture where we head in this direction and stay sensitive to the voice of Christ calling us to do this? Yes. And will that gradually lead others to see the love that we have and give glory to our Father in heaven? Absolutely. 
Now, because that's, that really is a grand vision and a lifelong task, I wanna just give you something, somewhere to begin, like a starting point. Taking from a, a two passages of scripture give you a starting point. The first one is very simple. The second one, I wanna give you a, a little exercise to, to take home to do. Uh, the first passage is Proverbs 19.11, and you can look at this later, just jot it down, look it up later. Proverbs 19.11, it says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. When, the next time you feel an offense, the next time you feel offended, ask yourself this, have I actually been sinned against? Is there sin here? Or am I just irritated and bothered because my preferences are not met? And this is not a moral right or wrong, it's just, we're just incompatible and it's irritating me. Um, Overlook that, try to overlook that. When it's not a sin or it's unclear that it's a sin or even if it's a very minor sin, seek to overlook it and in that way become slow to anger and not become so controlled by your anger. And that's, that's being wise. Good sense makes one slow to anger. Right? Start there. That's, that's simple. But if it is sin, if you've indeed been sinned against, then, then remember Galatians 6.1. That's the second passage. Galatians 6.1. If anyone is caught in any sin... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. If anyone is caught in any sin, you who are not just natural but spiritual should, rather than condemn them and judge them and reject them, you should seek to restore them. How? With the spirit of gentleness. And as you do that, keep watch on yourself so you won't be tempted. You won't be tempted to go and say, you know, I'm just confronting sin. That's all I'm doing when, in fact, you are harboring bitterness and unforgiveness. Do it with the spirit of gentleness in order to restore that person. Don't be tempted in that same moment. In God's eyes, the one who doesn't seek to point out someone's wrong with the gentleness of Christ is just as much in the wrong as the person that they're trying to confront. If you are reacting to sin in a sinful way, you're just as responsible as that person who sinned against you. God cares not just about whether we sin against each other, but how we react when we are sinned against by one another. And here it says, restore that person in the spirit of gentleness. Being right does not entitle you to be impatient or rude or judgmental. We're called to be spiritual, and that means we have to be gentle. Okay, so here's the exercise. Um, and if you're, if you're into journaling, maybe you can journal about this. Who or what situation are you currently offended by? What are the feelings that you are feeling as a result of this offense? Lay, lay those things out. And then ask this. What would be the most God-exalting, Christ-imitating, love-displaying thing to do with these feelings? Which of these feelings can I overlook? Which of these 
can I bear with patience? Which of these can I exercise self-control over? And which of these should I express with all gentleness? And, and if you want to express this, if you, want, if you think this, is, this warrants confrontation, then, then plan this out prayerfully to express it in a gentle way. And when you have a sense of peace and confidence that the Lord who wrote this letter to the Christians in Ephesus will look at your writing, your script, and say, I am all for that. And you're sure he's not going to look at that and say, that I have against you. But you're sure this would please him. Then say or do that thing. This is me showing you how to pick up the clothes and put it in your clothes. This is me showing you, this is cleaning the room. So that we go beyond, yes, Lord, you're right, I'll try. So we actually do it. Who or what are you offended by today? What are the feelings that are brought up by this offense? What can you do or say in response to these feelings that would glorify Christ and imitate him? Do or say that thing. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess to you our, our weakness in imitating the love that you have shown us, a love that we often take for granted and therefore fail to imitate. But Lord, you said uh, those who are forgiven much love much. And so, Lord, would you remind us of how, how much we are for, forgiven of, what it cost you to forgive us of our sins, and what it cost you to love us when we were difficult to love. It cost you your life. It cost you your blood. So, Lord, help us to obey your command to love others as you have loved us, and help us to stand firm on that sound doctrine. Uh, to love you and to love our neighbors, and that being our essence, that being our identity. Strengthen us to do this, uh, especially, Lord, if we are today feeling, feeling offended, feeling wronged and sinned against. Lord, help us not to imitate the world's reaction, but Christ's, so that you would not be against us, but for us and bless us and build us up. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.